Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I am Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. And we are so happy you are here with us today. So this series that we are chatting about with y'all is our Culture War series. And we're trying to come at this with an open mind, really understanding what we're talking about when these hot button issues come before us. And today, something that is very much in the news that we wanted to wrap our heads around and have a better understanding of and language for is that around gender identity or what we're hearing a lot of now, gender ideology. So we had an incredible guest come and speak with us, Ash Hall. Ash has done so much work around LGBTQIA plus rights and advocacy, working with politicians, working with nonprofits, and really trying to help people understand what these bills, these discriminatory bills, what their effects actually look like on Texans. Nicole, what are some of the things that you're still thinking about after our talk? Goodness, there's so many things, right? I think maybe we'll start with what I really appreciate about Ash is that they are not interested in hyperbolic language or kind of ranting. They are very much focused on educating and calmly discussing and trying to ease people's concerns or fears and from a really patient and calm place. And so I just really appreciate Ash's tone and their willingness to share so generously. So generously, right? That, so uh, generously that this is going to be a two-part episode. Way through the conversation, Nicole and I were realizing there's a lot here, a lot of important things to touch on, and we didn't want to stop the conversation. And yet we thought this would be good if we broke it up because it's a lot to take in one sitting. So learn a lot in the first half, get ready for the second half. It's going to really help you have better language to just like come at this. And I know for me, it's something I'm still learning a lot about. I even learned a lot about in the conversation. I was like, wait a minute, can you explain to me what transgender is? Because I think I had this idea that it is this, like Nicole, you said this in the episode, that a lot of people think it's about moving towards some sort of surgery to like completely trans fr- transition from one gender to the other. It's not that for some people. It's just this middle space that they stay in. And I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, there's a lot of my own assumptions that were challenged. And I appreciate that Ash was very very patient with us and helped explain this and it felt very judgment free. So it's okay to ask questions. I'm still going to be learning a lot. I feel like I'm behind on this, but I'm excited to educate myself and understand what it's all about so that I can be a better citizen and a better neighbor and Texan and community member because at the end of the day, we really want to create a more inclusive state. Yes. And I think want to prepare people that it is dense. There's a lot of information and a lot to take in. And so don't be intimidated by that. I'd also love to encourage re-listening. You know, if there's something that you feel like you missed and you couldn't quite get the first time around, I wouldn't stress over it. I wouldn't, you know, feel bad about that. I would just really encourage maybe listen again and see if that next time it sinks in. Certainly reach out if there's something you feel like we could answer. But 
I think patience is something I'd really love to encourage in all of us, being patient with ourselves, being patient with the information, and just taking your time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's listen in and hear more from Ash. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. Nicole and I are so excited to chat with Ash Hall. Hi, Ash. How are you? Pretty good. You? I'm doing good. I'm feeling somewhat rested, which is surprising because I have two little kids and they like to get into my bed early in the morning and I lose like an hour of sleep. But I don't know. I guess I had enough coffee to offset that. Yeah. Nicole said she had a little bit of a chaotic morning, but here we are. I did. We all made it, though. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surviving chaos is sometimes just all you can hope for. <laughs> yes. When we have our guests on, we love to get a little bit of their origin story and find out who made them, who they are. So tell us, are you from Texas? Where'd you grow up? What was your upbringing like? Those sorts of things. Yeah, I am from Texas. I grew up in Houston. I spent the first 10 or so years of my life in this kind of Gulf Gate, Magnolia Park area of Houston. So that was pretty inner city. I was definitely a minority racially, but my class status very much matched that of those around me. And then, yeah, 10 years in, my family separated and my mom and my sibling and I moved to Clear Lake which is very different from that kind of inner city area. That is where Mission Control is. It still has diversity, but a different kind of diversity. You're going to see more AAPI communities there than you would in the inner city area that I first started out in, and certainly more white people. But it made for an interesting adjustment, and it was an interesting spot for me as I grew up and grew into my identities because it was the kind of place that was conservative, but also scientifically minded. So you had a lot of people who were very religious, but also obsessed with science, wanted to know every little thing that NASA was doing. And so when it came to social issues, you never knew where people were going to fall. That made coming out really fascinating. You never knew how anyone was going to react. It made politics kind of one of those subjects that you never talked about if you could help it. There was a lot of polite discussion and a lot of subjects that we avoided. And so in a way, it felt like my political development was very much stunted by being in Clear Lake. It was good for me to get out. Yeah. Clear Lake is in Houston. It is. It's like a little suburb of Houston, southeast, very close to Galveston Island. We're about as close to the coast as you can get, which gets really interesting during hurricane season. Yeah. Yeah. Fellow suburb kid, but suburb of Dallas. So I know exactly what you're talking about with the kind of politeness around anything that could be slightly uncomfortable. And that's definitely my political background, too, which is why I feel pretty late to the game. But I'm here (laughs) and learning. But it definitely was not part of my upbringing because it just was not something you don't talk about that in polite company. We keep everything really nice. (laughs) Yeah. Like I was lucky that my mom would talk to me about it at all. So my understanding at a really young age, because of first election that I remember being aware of was Bush versus Gore. And my elementary school, which was in that inner city area, was interested in talking about that and having informal polls of the students and teaching them what voting was. And I asked my mom about it and she said Gore was the person to go with. And basically that the Republicans were this mean party and the Democrats were the ones that were trying to help people. And I had no idea at the time how true that would end up being. (laughs) 
But that was like a very helpful teeny tiny primer. And that was about as in-depth as it got for a number of years until I was significantly older. So it sounds like there wasn't a lot of discussion in your household regarding politics. Definitely not in the beginning, in part because my father was a Republican and my mom, of course, was a Democrat. And so bringing that up back when they were together would have been a nightmare. And then, of course, when they separated, all I knew was the Democrats were the nice people trying to help everybody. But at that point, we were in Clear Lake and that wasn't coming up as much. And so my mom would go do her thing and vote. And I was paying attention to other things, music and band practice and trying to figure out who I was. Yeah, we're always I think both of us are very interested in how your upbringing shapes how you think about politics now, especially if it's very different from where you are now where you were when you were younger, where your parents maybe were. So I'm always like, tell me what it was like. I'm curious about that experience. So that does beg the question, what is your political awakening? When did that happen? And what did that look like? Yeah, it's really interesting. So had that sheltered high school experience came out towards the end at the time as gay. I didn't know anything about gender identity. And I had been walking around for years feeling very different and not having any language for why. I knew that it helped to come out as gay, though. And so all that being said, my high school was very competitive. It was close to impossible to get into the top 10% to be considered for the best universities. And so I did not make it into UT Austin, which would have been the best choice probably for somebody with my identities. But what I did do was go ahead and get duped by Baylor University. They had the second best psychology program. And so that appealed to me because that was what I wanted to study. But when I went to campus and visited beforehand, they lied to my face and said that they welcomed LGBTQ students and they were treated like family and there was nothing to worry about. And God loves all his children and all of that cute stuff that I now feel a little bit skeptical of when I first hear that from anybody. It's going to take a while, I think, to heal from that. And can I pop in and just say for people who don't know, Baylor is a Baptist university. It is. It's Southern Baptist. And as it turns out, not a very good place to go if you're LGBTQ at all. Can I ask you real quick, Ash, was that because of like the professors, the faculty, the students? Like, where was that lie? Like, where was it revealed that that really wasn't what it was? Oh, like when did I figure out it was a lie? Yeah. From who? Was it all angles? Did you feel like there was any acceptance from any body, be it students or faculty or anything like that? There was some, which was how I ended up surviving, because I had to stay there for a year before I could transfer out. And thankfully, I did find a number of folks who were actually supportive. The thing that made it tricky was Baylor tried to make it as hard as humanly possible to have any sorts of discussions like that. If they caught you on their server having a discussion like that and you were a professor, you could be let go for it. If you were a student and they caught you trying to organize around that, they put you on a list of students that they would monitor more closely and they would wait for you to break some sort of university rule and use that as an excuse to let you go. And so when you say that, you mean like just any kind of discussions about LGBTQ issues? Yeah. And the more that it took on a tone of organizing, the worse off you were. So 
Couldn't do any of that. But my biggest frustration was I couldn't even find anybody for the longest time. It took me months to find somebody else that identified the way that I did. And so in the meantime, I had allies. A lot of them were very quiet and didn't necessarily want to talk about it, which is a whole lot when you're newer to an identity. Like, of course you want to talk about it. So that was really hard. I eventually did find a group of misfits on campus who I could talk to more about it. There was like one person in our group who was not okay with it, but it makes sense when you hear the makeup of this group because I got to be our queer person and then the rest of us were two Catholics, a Muslim, and a Calvinist. Yeah, in the end, it was the Calvinist who was not so cool with the LGBTQ piece. Everybody else was great. So yeah, that ended up helping quite a bit. And I was also able to come out to a number of my professors, and that helped quite a bit. In particular, English teachers. That's always been a safe space for me. Bless all the English teachers. Yeah, they were really helpful because I could get feedback on little written assignments that just had notes of support on them and stuff, and no one could see that in the system. So they were safe. I was safe. Wow. So it sounds like it was the administration that said, no, you'll be good, and then flipped that on its head once you were actually there. Correct. Yeah. In fact, the year that I was there, they hired Ken Starr to be the president of the university. And Ken Starr is known as being the lawyer who defended Proposition 8 in California, big anti-gay law against marriage. So yeah, just hell of a year to be there. So what happened after Baylor? Yeah. So I got out as soon as I could. And by the time I had, the administration and I had been fighting each other about me leaving because my grades were very good and it made them look bad that I was leaving. And we'd gone back and forth about whose fault that was that I needed to leave. This so sounds time, so bad. I know. Uh, I'm just like... And at such a young age. I can't imagine going through this at 18, 19. Yeah, it was wild. I was just like, why are you telling me to stay here and suffer so this school can get better when you literally have more power over it than I ever will? So yeah, by the time I left there, I was furious and a little traumatized and I desperately needed to have some agency over my own life. So I got to UT, immediately joined like all the LGBTQ groups that I possibly could, including an advocacy group. And I started to find my footing there and find my voice. And what ended up really getting me into politics was we did a lobby day with Equality Texas. First time I had ever been to the state capitol, first time I'd ever talked to lawmakers, any of that. And I found that not only was I pretty good at it, but I liked it a lot. And so where I think a lot of students... We're happy that they did that and then went back to doing other kinds of advocacy. I kept going back to the Capitol by myself to keep meeting more people and keep learning about the system. And that ended up being the big political awakening for me. So it comes down to the difference between Baylor and UT and what options were available and what community was available. I hear that thread. I definitely hear you were able to find a community. The other thread that I wanted to point out is your fight against sort of institutions. And then you finally landed in an institution where you could find a community. And then also am fascinated by the idea that you did that work at the Capitol and then kept coming back. Like that really also was an awakening for you. But similar to so many other stories that we've heard, and I think that Claire and I share, it's 
that personal connection, right? There's almost always that thing within each of us that is incredibly personal and that really animates our need to make change, right? And to be a part of change making. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's a bit of a longer story, but sometimes the origin stories turn out that way. Yes. And it's good to know because it very much informs, I think, the motivation of why you do what you do. Because having gone through this experience of being somewhere that was very oppressive, sounds very patriarchal, and being like, this is not benefiting me, making me a stronger, better, more whole person. And once you see that, it's easier to see it in other places and find other people who can help you fight against it so that other people don't have to go through that. Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. So then tell us how your journey into politics kept going and going. What was your first official job in politics? Official job. Or unofficial. (laughs) I think the first like unofficial thing I did was I joined Anise Parker's reelection campaign as sort of part of this program that was dedicated to teaching young folks about how campaigns work. And so it was an unpaid thing, but you learned a whole lot while you were there. Anise Parker for mayor of Houston. Is that the yes the campaign? Okay. Yeah. And that was wild because I didn't guess at all that they would be interested in me. I had pretty low self-esteem as well. So there was that playing into that. But I applied one day and then literally within hours they called me and said that I was exactly the kind of person they were looking for. So that was exciting. And yeah, then I got to learn what a campaign is like. I learned about how part of what a public servant does when they're being a public servant and not a straight up politician is actually asking the people they're supposed to be helping what they care about and how they're doing. And so we made a lot of phone calls to Houstonians asking those questions and taking notes. And then we would forward those along. So that way the mayor and her folks could go ahead and help people out. So that was really cool to be a part of. I got to go to some political events. I met her a number of times. And so that was like the first unofficial thing. But doing that helped me get another internship that ended up being pretty huge at the time. It was with the LGBTQ Victory Fund. It was the first year that they had launched their congressional internship program for LGBTQ students across the nation. And so depending on the semester, they would take four or eight students at a time from across the nation and put them in congressional offices. And it was very hard to get in. I did not feel like I stood a very good chance, but I got extremely lucky. And I not only made it in with seven other people who I got to learn from all over the country, I got placed in Leader Pelosi's office. She was leader at the time. I know she's speaker now. I'm still very used to calling her Leader Pelosi. But yeah, that kind of turned my world upside down because that was a completely different system from what I had seen in Texas different kind of politics. It was a chance to learn about more issues because I was getting sent all over the Capitol for different hearings and taking notes and bringing those back. I was helping write speeches, all sorts of different things. And so it was like being thrown from easy mode into like semi-hard mode, but it was fascinating. And it was actually at that point that I started getting asked questions like, 
would you ever consider running for office? Would you ever consider making a career out of this? And I hadn't really given that much thought at that point. But that was when I started to actually ask myself if I could see myself doing any of those things. So that ended up being instrumental in me staying in this line of work. Yeah, that's interesting. It sounds like you were really drawn to the lobby day and kept going back to the Capitol and got to these other positions. People were asking you, will you stay in this work? Was there something else that you thought you were going to do? Because to me, it seems like a natural progression that you would continue to grow in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. I still ended up getting my major in psychology. And so the whole time all of this was happening, I still held on to this possibility that I would still go and become a therapist. And as I evolve in my ideas of what that might look like, different kinds of therapy or specialties became of interest, like being a therapist for LGBTQ folks. But yeah, for a lot of my college career, I thought that might be what I ended up doing. But by my senior year, I was fairly positive that would not be happening. So I just went ahead and got the degree. But at that point, because of my time in DC, I understood that your degree does not necessarily dictate what you'll be doing. So I kept going <laughs> to the Capitol. <laughs> yeah, I have a history degree and I am not a historian. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and, yep, you just take those skills. There's incredible skills you learn no matter what you study that are applicable no matter what you do. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm grateful I did psychology because there's a lot that I can see and a lot that I think it's helped me be able to navigate more easily in the Capitol. So I don't regret that at all. But the main thing that I tell mentees at this point when they're asking about their degrees is most places that are hiring just want to see proof that you can commit to something for four years. Yeah, I remember some class I took in college. I think it was a philosophy class. I did not like philosophy, but I remember like two things from that class. He said the whole purpose of college is to learn how to write well and speak well. And that's kind of it. And I was like, oh, that's why we're all here. You're going to figure out the rest in your other career or in your continued edu education. So, yeah, very much illuminated, like the reason you get that degree in the first place. So good advice. Tell us a little bit about what is happening since you're our political expert around this discussion regarding gender ideology. I don't even know if that's the right word. It's the new thing, right? I could be wrong. It feels like the new thing. The same guy who pushed CRT and critical race theory as this horrible beast has now termed gender ideology as the next arena that he's going to light up folks and make such a hot button issue. But anyway, Ash, what would you say? Certainly calling it gender ideology is new. The attacks on trans people are not quite so new. We, at least personally, I started seeing bills attacking the trans community probably in 20, 2015 was the first time that I became aware of it in Texas. But I'm sure there were times before then where there may have been the occasional bill that was specifically targeting us. I just wasn't deep enough into the Capitol yet to know about it. But I do know that by the time I was a fellow with Equality Texas in 15, we were starting to see bills that were targeting trans people specifically in terms of bathroom use, in terms of public accommodations use, things like that. So the attacks aren't necessarily new. 
what has ramped up is the intensity and the focus by our opponents. I think they have figured out that if they separate us trans people out from the rest of the greater LGBTQ community, it's going to be easier to take us down. Which we've seen this with a lot of oppressors over, gosh, centuries, is the divide and conquer tactics. And so, in a sense, that's not even anything new, but calling it gender ideology, coming up with these really wild lies about how parents are forcing this on kids, that's relatively new. Yeah, it's a hot mess. They've only to look at history to know that we've been here forever. Is gender ideology, is that good? What does that mean? Is that even the way we should be talking about this? Yeah, I wouldn't exactly call it that because it's not ideology, really. The idea, they're calling it a gender ideology because that makes it sound political and it makes it sound like something trans people are using to manipulate other people. Like when we think of ideology, that's what a lot of us think of, right? And yeah, it's a framework that's coming from the right. Yes, that okay. calling an ideology that's coming from the right. So it's saying you think that you're this instead of you are this. Yeah, it's partially that your parents want you to be this, your teachers want you to be this, liberals want you to be this, but you're not. This isn't real. And if you think you're this, you're mentally ill is what that is, which as we all know, that is extremely messed up because that's not how it works. And trans people have been here pretty much since the beginning of time. There's art and there are archaeological findings and anthropological findings that prove that we've been around forever. There would be more, but actually a lot of information on trans people going back further in time was actually burned by the Nazi Germany regime. So that's why there's not more. But yeah, calling it an ideology is fairly new, but all we've really been talking about in LGBTQ plus circles, in progressive circles, mental health circles, you name it. It's just a matter of talking about gender identity and expression and making it clear to people that there are more than two genders. You may or may not find that one of these genders works better for you than the one that you were assigned at birth. It's not a big deal either way, because you're still human and worthy of dignity, love, and respect. But if you do fall into this broader transgender category, there are some considerations to make around your personal safety. And there's a journey you may have to go on if you find that you need to make changes to your body. Because the medical process is pretty intense and has a lot of roadblocks, as well as, for that matter, the mental health system and the legal system. So that's most of what those discussions were. And it was making sure that young kids in particular, but really anyone of any age, just knew that this was a set of identities that actually exists. And therefore, if they were already feeling some kind of dysphoria or sense of otherness, that they weren't alone. And that otherness isn't a bad thing. There's feeling different and feeling okay about that and there's feeling different and feeling terrible about it, we would prefer that people feel good or okay about it because most of our differences are something to celebrate. So basically, conservatives took that whole model, that whole way that we were talking about this, and they have turned it into something that's supposed to be about child abuse and forced surgeries and no consent whatsoever for the kids. And it makes the whole thing sound terrible and scary when it's really anything but. 
the kids and the families where parents are actually accepting, they lead the way on the process and the parents are there as guides. And it's the same thing with doctors and therapists and everybody else who's kind of part of that kid's journey. But the kid leads the way. The kid is the one who decides what happens and what doesn't. Everyone else can advise as to when or what is appropriate based on age or development. But yeah, there's really nothing scary about it. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around why people, some people are feeling so much resistance in this moment to this conversation about gender identity. And all of a sudden, it feels like we're asking people what their pronouns are and even like non-binary. And it feels like there's a lot of newness and that always kicks up the ground for confusion and change. And there's so much resistance to that. So I guess I'm trying to figure out what my question is here, but how do we help people get over that discomfort and start understanding that adopting this language, accepting people, it's going to be, we're going to be better on the other side. How do we help those people get there? Yeah, that's part of what I'm trying to figure out. And it reminds me that as much as we need policy change, we also need culture change. And we can't have one without the other without things not going well. And so on my end, I just try to be really reassuring. I tell people, folks who have identities like mine that are non-binary, we've always existed. We just didn't always have the words to describe who we are. And so now we do. We have found other people like us. We have found pronouns that work for us. And now we just want people to not only know who we are, but to respect who we are, because that's part of how we love each other as humans. And so it doesn't have to be something scary. And it's okay if you mess up, if it takes a while to get used to this. You're not going to be in trouble. You're not going to be screamed at, anything like that. These things take time. And so that's part of what I'm doing to help people understand that. I also make it clear that like, it doesn't mean that you absolutely have to question your own gender identity. It doesn't mean that you have to take on a gender or anything like that, that you aren't prepared to take on. I think some people believe that we want everyone to be transgender. And it's like, that is not true. That sounds like a lot of work for one thing. I think some of what makes people uncomfortable is realizing that because trans people exist, so do cisgender people. Folks who are not transgender, whose identities match what's on their birth certificates. And I don't think that would necessarily matter so much to people. But when you come into conversations about power and privilege and who is more likely to be a victim of violence or who is more likely to not get a job, things like that's when people start to dig in their heels because people associate privilege with being the bad guy. And it's really not the case. It just means that the way our systems are set up, you're supposed to have an easier time than another group of people with an identity that you do not have. It doesn't make any particular person a bad guy, but people are very resistant to the idea that they could have any kind of privilege because they feel that their own lives have been hard or they have other identities where they do not hold privilege. And the thing is, as we know, we all hold a number of different identities and the whole thing is very complex and we'll have power in some places and none in others. And 
ultimately the thing that needs to be changed more than anything are the systems that privilege some people over others and end up hurting different people. At some point in time, an identity that we hold will be attacked and will be hurt over that. And at another point in time, we'll be fine, but somebody that we have privilege over is going to be hurt and we won't even feel it. So, yeah, I think that's the scary thing, like identifying and seeing, truly seeing the power and privilege that we all possess in one way or another, because I think there's that fear. If I lose that privilege, if I lose that advantage, I will be alone, left in the dust, whatever, not be able to provide for myself. And it's such a bigger thing when you zoom out because it is this scarcity, capitalistic sort of world we've been a part of. (laughs) And that's the harder thing to change. And the change is hard and scary, but but the road we're on at the same time, it's not like the better of the options. It's going to be more work to change it. But here we are. Yeah. And I don't even know that people are conscious that they're scared to lose any kind of privilege. But what I am seeing people consciously do is take offense to being told they have any privilege. And so I think that's part of what's at play here is nobody wants to feel like there's some kind of oppressor or because their first is confusion or anger because they are confused, that makes them a bad person, things like that. People don't take well to that. But it's true, though, like your privilege actually has no standing on whether or not you're a good or bad person, your actions determine that. So yeah, that's been the struggle. And I think I'm seeing a lot of resistance in particular from like cisgender women, especially cisgender white women. When we start talking about trans women, especially black trans women and the particular struggles that they face, because I think cisgender women, it's so interesting. There's this desire to overturn patriarchy for a number of them, even though some of the more conservative ones absolutely cling to the power they're granted by being with a man. But there is this camaraderie that is found in having an oppressed identity. And I think what I'm seeing is a number of cis white women do not like the idea that they could have power over another gender. It flies in the face of this identity that they've created for themselves, especially if there's something of a victim complex there. And so they're willing to gatekeep what it means to be a woman. They're willing to say that there are only two genders, that sex rather than gender is the only thing that matters, by which I mean we're talking DNA, chromosomes, secondary sex characteristics. But yeah, it's a lot of effort to gatekeep so that there's this shared identity and illusion perhaps that they can maintain where they're strong and independent, but at the same time, victims worthy of attention and funding and whatever it is that they've attached to that particular identity. But none of that changes that when we are looking at violence and proportions in terms of communities, Black transgender women are undergoing an epidemic uh, in, in terms of assault and in terms of murder. And so you can gatekeep all you want, but that doesn't solve the greater problem of this violence is happening. So it's a mess. And it's an area that I feel like I have to be so careful in as a trans person, 
Because at this point, as wild as it is with all the advocacy that I've done and everything I've seen, I actually feel like I have to be the most careful now around white cis women. Because if I push too far, the amount of vitriol and that sense of betrayal that I have seen white cis women express is a little bit intense. And sometimes it scares me. So it's been wild. And you mean being careful? What do you mean by that? Like, how are you careful? Like explaining gender identity and expression and transphobia versus sexism uh, versus trans misogyny and like how we fit race into that and intersectionality. All of these conversations, they're very important conversations that desperately need to be had. And it's interesting because I'm finding that for the first time in my life, I am starting to get really nervous about having those conversations with cisgender white women. I feel like I may be coming into this a little late to say this, but I feel like a breakthrough I had. So, Ash, I've shared on the podcast before that my 10-year-old is non-binary and we had to do a lot of learning when we had that conversation and my husband and actually my whole family. And... So one of the like sort of quick moments of tension that it brought up was that we knew and we also knew that we were going to be heading to West Texas for Christmas within a couple of months of this is my child Cassidy announcing that they were non-binary. And so not a tailspin quite, but a little bit of, okay, so how are we going to handle this with our very conservative West Texas family? And so... I decided what would be best was if I wrote a letter to them, just detailing what to expect and we're going to be coming and this is what you're going to see when we get there so that everybody could have their own private reactions. But what I found as I was writing the letter was that I needed to do some education, share the education that I had gone through as a result of Cassidy's announcement. And for me, I broke it down into categories for them, which was there's gender identity, there's gender expression, and there's sexuality. And I was just trying to very succinctly, very simplistically say gender expression is how you appear to the world. Gender identity is how you identify yourself. And then sexuality, of course, is who you're attracted to. And so in Cassidy's case, you know, their gender expression, they actually have a more sort of feminine presenting look to the world. But their gender identity is that they don't feel like a girl or a boy and that we're not going to talk about sexuality because... At that point, they're eight. (laughs) That's not a discussion we need to have. Plus, it's also not really anybody's business. And so sometimes I think just that super basic framework is sometimes gets lost in all of that is just, okay, let's just really take all of the fever pitch, what people view as so scary and break it down like that. Because even want to throw out there too, it does get complicated. And also it can be really simple. Like my older daughter is gender non-conforming. Her gender expression is very male presenting. Her gender identity, she identifies as a girl. And again, we're not going to talk about sexuality. And so it's like, there's a lot of different combinations. But once you have the basic understanding my hope it doesn't feel so scary and that it gives you permission to make mistakes and that it's okay. And people are actually very gracious about that. But I just wanted to step back, I think, really highlight just categories for people who might be feeling a little confused when we talk about these things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Apologies. I may have gone off on a tangent there for a bit. But yeah, that's in its simplest form what this discussion is, that these 
categories exist. They're here to help you have language for how you feel and who you are. And I think there are people, especially conservatives, who get scared at the idea that these are identities that they can explore. I get the sense some of them probably would identify in ways similar to myself if they would allow themselves to explore those identities. And that scares them. And that makes them have a bad reaction. Yeah. Need to declare like such a sticking point. (laughs) But what if instead we just kind of all of this with a little bit of fluidity? Like it's okay. You can explore and you can change your mind and not even necessarily change your mind, but just find out new things, learn more about yourself and discover new aspects. Like why does everything have to be so fixed? Yeah. And I think fixed is what has brought a lot of these folks comfort. Whereas for folks like myself, the idea that nothing is fixed is what brings comfort. That's a tough place to be in for so many people. Yeah. And the truth of the world is like some things are fixed and some things aren't. And the comfort you find in it is really what you make of it. And that you can find your own comfort, but you don't have to impose that on somebody else. Precisely. And it's interesting because they're accusing the trans community of imposing our identities and the way that we see these identities on the world when the more accurate way of explaining this struggle is they do not like that there is an alternative way of seeing the world to what they see and what they've been taught and they are trying to impose their worldview on the rest of us our identities, our mental health be damned. And do you think that's about power and control, about controlling what people do with their lives and who's in and who's out? From a political framework, absolutely. This goes along with the struggles we've been having about bodily autonomy and abortion access, things like that. Yeah, the Republican Party in particular thrives when they get to dictate what we do with our bodies and how we see ourselves and what XYZ identity means about what rights we do and don't have. Because their whole thing is making a certain class of people feel incredibly special. And then the class below that gets to spend their lives feeling hopeful that they will enter that class. And then the class below that, they have no hope. They exist because that middle class there needs to feel like they're better than somebody. So that system that they have set up that they want. And so people who are trans, LGBTQ, Muslim, Black, Latin, AAPI, you name it, anyone who is different from that kind of white, cishet, Christian, idealized model that they have come up with exists to be controlled or to serve as the basis of somebody else feeling better than. Yeah. It's crazy because like this structure is a scarcity model. It's a pecking order. And yet the people at the top, I would say they love that they really like to see themselves as like you were saying, victims being oppressed. And it's like the upside down. How can you believe in this totem pole? And yet you're the ones on the bottom in your minds. So it's very strange, but it's working for them. It is. It's odd. I've met people who grew up in these environments where 
they did have quite a bit of privilege, but they were taught by their sort of church groups. These They're practically cults in some cases, to be completely real with you, but they've been taught that by virtue of being Christians, white Christians, etc., they are actually victims. The world is going to treat them terribly, and they must cling to their faith in each other and be ready to go out the same way Jesus did. It's fascinating and seems to miss the point of the Jesus story in the first place. But yeah, it is wild. It is very much that upside down feeling of how can you possibly see yourself as being such a victim when you have so much more than so many people, when there's this whole system that is designed to make sure that you are comfortable at the expense of other people. And yet you still don't feel secure. You still don't feel like the winner. It's so broken. It is. Yeah, you're supposed to feel like you any day could reach the point of being like a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk and at the same time be fearful that you'll lose everything. And so you stay in this place of like hope and fear constantly and never feel fully settled and that makes you easier to control and it makes it easier for you to not pay attention to the systems that keep you in that bind. Yes. Thank you. That is something that's ah, what we want to do this podcast is reveal those systems because they are very much at play. But we're so busy, like you said, caught up in these emotions that we can't even see it for what it really is. And then ask, how do we feel about this system? Do we like it? I don't like it. I think a lot of people, when they're really honest with themselves, will say, I don't like feeling this way. I don't like being spun around. And I really want to solve these problems. But you can't until you name it, recognize it confront it and then strategize how to change it. And then that's the next problem we run into is when we talk about how to change it, when we talk about creating systems that allow everyone to thrive and gives everybody the basics that they need to survive, then we start hitting those scarcity mindset arguments about we don't have enough to do that. And so this needs to be a merit-based system. We're one of the richest nations in the world and we spend more on defense than just about anybody and we have more than enough for everybody. We could easily end hunger in our own nation, not to mention other ones. Yeah, we don't have a scarcity of much of anything here but compassion. Ooh, say that for the people yeah. in the back, Ash. Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to be stealing that line, by the way. Hey, y'all. We hope you're enjoying the interview with Ash Hall so far. So this is part one of the episode. Part two will air next week. And in part two, we talk more about the bills that were introduced in the Texas legislature last session and the ones that are going to be on the horizon. Also, some of the things impacting families with children who belong in the LGBTQIA plus community, specifically transgender children and the challenges those families are facing right now. So we really encourage you to tune back in. This was a great conversation and we just love sharing our time with Ash. See you next week. Thank you everybody for joining me, Nicole Abshire and my co-host Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics and we hope that you'll do more with us check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.